Thanks for listening to Faith in the Fast Life. I'm Nick Orta. I'm your host. On this show, we look to break down the stereotypes of what the Christian looks like to the world by receiving testimony of action sports athletes and other athletes and just individuals across the world. You can find us on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and FastLifeMinistries.com to give. Hope you enjoy this episode. Guys, thank you for listening to Faith in the Fast Life. Uh, you are getting ready to start Phil Chapin's Part 2. We encourage you to go back to Part 1 if you have not heard it. What an incredible story. What wonderful work God has done in this life. Here's Part 2. I hate to say it, but yet it's it was a turning point for me. So I ended up... Uh, being uh, a dealer, I don't want to say a dealer because everybody gets this image in their head of what a dealer was. My nickname growing up was Stony. That you know, just that was my growing up on a little beach community, uh, San Clemente, um, just a little kid smoking weed, and I used to deal little acid hits to the kids at school um, and joints, and that's all I really did. But I had all the stuff, and my dealer's name was Bogey, and I would go to his house and get stuff and then take it to school and um one day i went there he wasn't at so i went around the back room or the back window was open and he wasn't there big old wad of uh cash was on his dresser so i jumped in the window and took the the wad of cash and then i was like hey i know where he stores the stuff so i took a whole bunch of weed and um then i took off well he ends up finding out it was me and I get, uh, I, as I'm coming home, just hanging out with friends. And, uh, and I probably laid low for probably a good month and a half. But eventually he figured out it was me. And uh, they caught me in an alley. And I know it sounds like the movies, but I literally was walking down an alley and a car comes from behind me. And I just look and don't pay any attention. Then another car comes in front of me and the lights are on. And then the car behind me turns the lights on. And I'm like, and they're both stopped. And I'm course i'm in an alley so there's just garages right now so i'm pinned i can't there's no little outlets you know they just kind of moved in closer and i recognize the car and so now you start thinking really quick you know what story you gonna what lie you're gonna give this time and so basically i told bogey that uh who by the way didn't make any eye contact with me um but i told him i have it hidden at my grandmother's house and i said all your money everything is there um, I'll get it for you right now. So thankfully, this guy wasn't a big enough fish that he still, uh, when you look at the tiered system, he, he kind of needed to get a hold of what I took. So I went to my grandmother. They, they took me to my grandmother's house, and they parked just maybe a house two down. And I went in there, and I was scared, and I'm sweating. And I, I was still a little high myself, but I remember grabbing my mo- grandmother and shaking her and saying, Grandma, you got to give me money for you. My, you got to give me money. You got to give me money. They're going to kill me. And uh, she was like, I'm not giving you money for your drugs. The sweetest lady in the world. Sweetest woman in the world. They rescued my dad as an orphan. And my dad abused her with his drug addiction. Now her grandson is in the same spot. And I shake her. I slammed her up against the wall. I slapped her. I didn't use use a closed fist. But the next door lady, uh, next door neighbor lady, called, always looked after my grandmother, heard the commotion and called the police. And when the police arrived, uh, obviously bogey, they all left. And then I was picked up and then I was taken to juvie. 
And that's, uh, spent two years in juvie and got out and swore that I would never be that person again. So that was, that was rock bottom. bottom. That was enough. How old were you at this point? I was 14. And then I realized that during that time that, um, you know, just how much I love my grandmother and how she didn't deserve it. And I, every time I had an opportunity to call, she wouldn't take my call. And when I got out, I went to see her. She didn't want to see me. Uh, then she couldn't take care of herself. She was in a facility. And then uh, fast forward a bunch of years later, and I'll get to that here in a bit, but I ended up becoming a high school motivational speaker. And I was speaking in schools in Santa Rosa, California, Northern Cal. Uh, so I was up in NorCal, and it was right at the time of the Rodney um, King verdict and the riots were going on in L.A. I just happened to be driving south on I-5 going to San, uh, to, um, San Juan Capistrano. Um, and uh, she was in a, a home there, and I went to just south of San Clemente. And I went to visit her there right during the middle of all the riots and everything. I drove down I-5 and got off and went and visited my grandmother and apologized to her. And this was many, 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 many years later. I was definitely, I was probably about 25, maybe 25 years old. And uh, she finally saw me for the first time. So almost 10 years, 11 years. And she asked her to forgive me. She forgave me. And it's kind of funny because I, I wanted to pray with her, you know. And uh, Was she a woman of faith? She was a devout Catholic, so yes. I mean, okay. this woman loved. Um, she prayed for me all the time. Yeah. And, uh, and that was probably the only basis of faith you had in your life at that, that point, right? Yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, I up, to, up until you know, when that all happened with Bogey yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah, I went, to, I went to Catholic school for two years for discipline reasons, but uh, didn't last. They kicked me out. I was, I was just very angry. So let me, now that everyone's kind of getting kind of a picture of these segments of my life, there was a point when I was in foster care and my mom called me and I was probably about eight, nine years old. Um, and I was at a home and my mom called me and said, I've got a new boyfriend and we're going to move to the country. We're going to get horses and chickens and goats. And I mean, to a kid, I just want my mom, you know, I want to get out of these weird people's house. I want to you know, because let's be honest, in foster care, there's a whole nother world. There's a whole nother culture people don't realize. So there's like, there's a pecking order in foster care. So the older kids um, uh, pick on the littler kids and maybe not just physically, but it can be sexual. Um, there's just, it's, it's traumatic. You're in a house, you don't know the people. There's abuse. There's little things like that that take place. And um, you're just kind of... It's a survival of the fittest kind of a thing. And how old, so 14 years old, you go to juvie. Yeah. Bogey. You're in there for two years. Yeah. When you come out of there, you go to foster care? No. Well, this is all before the foster care I'm talking about is when I was eight or nine. Okay. So uh, the positive part of the story is when I get out of juvie. Okay. So, um, but when I was eight or nine, I'm standing at a window waiting for my mom to pick me up because she's got this new boyfriend and she doesn't show up. And she didn't show that whole day. And that was the day that I flipped the switch in my head. 
And I went from being a little innocent, compliant little boy. Um, I wasn't a troublemaker. I, I just kind of went with the flow. I was very flexible with everything. And then I, that day on, I flipped. And that was I, the final straw that turned you to the dark side. Yep. And, said, and I became angry. I became, I started lashing out, started standing up for myself in these homes. Um, I started running. I became what they call a runner. And so they put you in uh, specific homes, uh, short-term, short-term type homes, but special restrictions. And, um, but I was just a runner. You know, I kept trying to go find my mom. Every supermarket, we, you know, there's Alpha Beta and Ralph's and stuff. And I would, I would go looking in these grocery stores for my mom, looking for the lady with the long blonde hair. Every time I'd look around, you know, their face to see if it was her, hoping she's looking for me, trying to rescue me, but never happened. So, so that day from nine years old to, let's say, 16, all the anger and all the hatred, everything just became who I was. But while I was in juvie, 14 to 16, those were the, that was the time when I did a lot of thinking about my life. I remember when I um, was picked up that uh, I realized that I wasn't going to be any different than my mom or my dad. I had to be the one to change. And I just said, you know, I want to be different. And so... Um, when I got out, uh, I was supposed to go back into foster care, but they sent me to Oregon to uh, my uh, mom's sister uh, had agreed to take me in. And so I went there, and uh, my aunt had attended a church that had a school. And so they pleaded with the pastor um, if he would take me. Well, it just turns out that that pastor... Uh, had some type of um, work program, work release or whatever program in the city with the court system. And so he uh, took me in to the school. And it was really foreign to me. I'd never really been around any religious stuff outside of the Catholic. And and that was even once or twice. But um, so I played, got into sports and uh, stayed with my aunt and then started couch surfing some more with friends because my aunt, her family was had issues of their own, and so I just didn't feel comfortable there. So I just kind of went from house to house to house, and then I um, was in a foster home there at the end. And uh, so elaborate on that just a little bit more. Your story is so deep; like there's all these different things. But I yeah, mean, you're you're now feeling better. You're not as angry. Is that correct? I mean, 14 to 16, you're in the foster care. You go to Oregon, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit healed. You, you're going to a, a church school, mm-hmm. attending church. So you're getting a little bit of the Lord put in. I didn't you. really go to church. I just did the school things. So, I mean, it was all weird. I mean, they raised their hands. They, I thought someone had a gun in the building the first time I saw that. Because where do you see like 300 people all with their hands up in the air? You know right. what I mean? So it so, was all... So the Lord's not with you. You're not buying into oh, it. Oh, no, not man. at all. And then, so at your aunt's house, other things aren't really yeah, right. No. So there's that struggle there as well, and you're still looking for your place. You're still yeah. trying to find who Phil really is. Yeah. So I connect with my football coach, who happened to be also my baseball coach. He didn't have any children, but he took me under his wing, and um, there were nights I was able to stay at his house. Uh, when his wife was okay with it, but she just didn't like me staying there all the time. So he would make me 
whenever I stayed at his house, it was, we'd have near beer and pizza and then we'd sit at the table and he'd put on the Bible tapes and I'd sit there nodding my head, listening to the, the old English of the Bible. And that's what he made me do. He would always say, say your prayers, uh, take your vitamins, read your Bible, you know, and that was kind of his motto. And, um, but he was good influence on me. He really was. And, uh, he played a huge role in my life and kept me grounded. Um, but, uh, yeah, nothing really happened like spiritually for me there. Um, it wasn't until my senior year that uh, when I aged out of foster care, I was continuing doing the couch surfing around. Uh, one of the kids I played football with, his mom and dad, told me I could move in with them. And that man, un- I mean, that man was the state youth director. So he ran all the um, youth groups for a certain denomination for the entire state. And so every summer they'd go to camp. And so they invited me to camp uh, the year before my senior. So this, the summer between my, before my senior year. And then during my senior year, they found out that I, I wasn't really landing at one spot particularly. So that's when they took me in, in the middle of my senior year. And um, so they're the other ones that saw me all the way to graduation and, uh, uh, it was great because, I mean, this was the Leave it to Beaver family, like on steroids. Like they had sit down breakfast every day and sit down dinners every day. Uh, I remember this kid in high school, their son I played football with. Um, he had the biggest lunch in the school. I mean, you always know the mama's boy, though, right? You know what I'm saying? You can always tell by their lunches. I mean, and it's not just the fact that he had a juice box and the orange that was already peeled. It's all about the sandwich, and it was cut diagonally. That's a mama's boy. You know what I mean? Nick, you probably had that. <laughs> you, know, you know what? My grandmother used to cut it. My grandma, when anytime she stayed with us, yeah, she would she would write little notes on the napkin. Yeah, and I was always so embarrassed, but I look back at it now, and and I love my parents. I, I yeah. love my family, but my meme, yeah, she was an amazing woman. Yeah, she was. She just passed away last year, but she was. She was a great woman. Yeah. Like she did those cool little things. And I thought it was so terrible back yeah. then. But like, then you hear like your story, and you're like, yeah. man, like it really makes the person like me really appreciate what we had. Yeah. And this mother did that to their, to her son. And then once I moved in, I got the same sandwiches and I got the same little notes. Um, and it was amazing. I mean, there, the father who, uh, there was one day he looked at me and uh, after I moved in with them and there was this moment, there was this, point where I was wrestling because I I was struggling with I think they're going to get rid of me like just like everybody else do you know right. that I, I was a, I was vulnerable I'd stayed there now it was almost six eight months you're questioning how can this be yeah like how can this really be how can yeah. this go this long and still be good I've like, never been somewhere that long yeah. I've never been in a home that long this is now I'm feeling uncomfortable. so I started like acting out and trying to get them to kick me out and uh, I remember one day I got up and that man was, I got up early to go get in the shower and I heard him praying in the other room and, and I heard the prayer and it was, God, I can't love him in my, in my own strength. I need you to help me love him. And uh, I was like, whoa, because I knew it was about me. And so then when I got out of the shower and got ready and I came out and he looked at me and he's like, Phil, he's like, I'm not going to hit you because everyone has hit you. 
I'm not going to give up on you because everyone else has given up on you. He said, son, I'm going to love you because no one has ever loved you. And he grabbed me and he pulled me in for a hug and I hated being touched. And uh, he held me and I couldn't hold it. I haven't cried in, at this point, probably at least 10 years, it seems like. And he literally held me and I just started bawling. I'd never felt that kind of uh, unconditional love from anybody, not my mother, not my father. And here's a man that never, uh, I never met until a few years prior is saying this. And so that man had a phrase, and it was, have I told you today that I love you? And I'd look at him, and I'm like, no. And he's like, I love you, son. Just the fact that he would call me son. It was like the first time I was finally being um, claimed. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So then when I graduated. And it's, and it's willingly. It's not. The foster care Not system. Paid. This is after foster care. This is yeah. This is a man of God, absolutely wrapping his arms around a child of God. Yeah, a broken kid. Yeah, who had no real guidance, and so he ends up uh, becoming such a huge influence in my life in so many areas. Um, he passed away in 2017, and it was a blow. It was a huge blow. But two days before he passed away, he grabbed me and his two sons, as he would say, his three boys, and I was one of them. And he handed us, well, my mom handed us each a Bible of his. And each Bible he gave to each of us was completely destroyed, like marked up, torn, and just used, you know what I mean? Well-used Bible. And I can't, I'm not going to say that I've been the best, like, person. I mean, I have my struggles like everybody. But when it comes down, you know, when it comes down to the nitty-gritty, that man's influence and his belief in God so impacted my life on so many different levels. But he was saying things to each one of his two boys, and then I had an opportunity to speak, and I said, you know what, Dad? Um, When I hang my jacket up on the truck, the name patch on the back of it says Chapin. That's your name. It doesn't say Landy. It says Chapin. He's like, that's your name. You gave me your name. And he just squeezed my hand, and I just lost it. And, and it's something that I remember every time I hang my jacket up or I, I you know, see my helmet. It's got it on the back of my helmet. And um, this man, Chapin, changed my life and uh and it goes back to after I after I graduated I was still in their home and then about two years later he's like you know what son he's like if you've ever thought about changing your name we'd be more than happy to let you change it to Chapin he initiated the conversation I always wanted to but I never I felt it was out of place for me to ask that so he offered it to me and we went down to the Courthouse and just did a legal name change since I was an adult. There's no use in doing an adoption. But from that point on, he and his wife uh, made sure that I was no different than any of their two boys. And um, it was pretty awesome. And, you know, their two sons are extremely um, incredible boys, great men. Um, they've had tremendous careers in the music industry. Uh, the family that I lived with, I didn't really realize how influential they were 
in their denomination, very recognized nationally. And he told me a story one day. He's like, you know what? I turned down the national youth director job because I just didn't feel it was right. Well, how many guys don't really pray about that stuff? They just, ooh, it's a, it's a step up. You know, ooh, it's a promotion, da 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 And they just go after it. Had he taken that move, they wouldn't have been around to take me in. And so that was huge for me. But um, an incredible family. The Chapin family has been amazing. And then they're, um, so like my dad's mom, uh, the, the adoptive dad's mom, uh, grandma there, she uh, she's 99 as we speak right now. She's buried her first husband, her second husband, and now she's buried her son. And she's just hanging on, but she 100% has uh, claimed me owned me as one of her grandchildren and just that incredible family that I didn't have growing up, I was able to get later in life. So then you fast forward to, let's say 1991, I, I'm in college in Dallas, Texas, and um, there's this guy by the name of Dave Reaver who uh, he's very recognized as a military hero. And I heard him speak and it was like amazing. And I remembered him because the dad that took me in brought him in for a youth conference. And I'll never forget the guy because he was uh, he was injured in Vietnam by a hand grenade that blew up next to his face. And uh, he was completely disfigured. And when I met him, um, I was 17, 18 years old. He stuck out his hand, but his hand was so deformed, I didn't touch it. I was like, <laughs> I kind of stepped back like, you know, too bad we weren't doing fist bumps back in those days, you know. But I just didn't want to touch it. It was so deformed and disfigured. I was like, uh, whatever. Funny thing is, is he's never forgot. I'm the only guy that's never once shook his hand because of its deformity, you know. So here I am in Dallas, you know, just kind of working at uh, as a valet at one of the top hotels. And I'm doing all this kind of stuff. And I hear this guy speaking. I go to hear him speak for a Desert Storm Welcome Home Rally. And after it was over, I walk up, and he totally remembered who I was. Absolutely remembered. He didn't know my first name, but he knew my last name because he knew the man uh, that was the youth director. And he identified me. It's weird that he associated all that. But as he would tell you, he said that night when I walked up on the stage, he felt like the Lord gave him the name. And he also said that as he was talking to me, he felt like the Lord also told him that I was going to marry his daughter. <laughs> you know, right? All that happened right then and there, of course. Wow. I didn't know any of this. He didn't like share any of that with me. But um, later on down the road, uh, things kind of connected. But yeah, so I ended up uh, uh, going to work for him. I was a roadie. Uh, he spoke in public high schools, crisscrossed the nation, and was an incredible uh, motivational speaker. And I was just a guy that set up the sound equipment and tore it down. But I got to ride on a bus, crisscross the country in a tour bus. Uh, ate at like country buffets and had all the food I ever wanted. And for a kid who grew up poor and starving all the time, I mean, this was the life. There were times I got to go ride on the private jet with him. And I mean, it was amazing. And uh, I started uh, getting to know his daughter and we'd play cards on the bus. We'd sit and we'd talk, but I mean, I'm the, I'm the little ghetto kid here. So I knew I don't, I knew I didn't have a chance, but I didn't know that she, she liked me. And then little by little, we just kind of, hit it off and uh, started dating. And uh, it's kind of funny because she went to her dad and she said, um, I asked him, first of all, I asked him if I could date his daughter. And and uh, she wanted to know what, what, you know, how it all went down. And so she's like, daddy, what did, what did you tell him? 
And he said, well, I basically told him that I'll take him out on the boat. And um, if he can walk on water, the answer is yes. So, <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I, I hit it off with her dad because to be honest with you, he and I are two peas in a pod. See, all my scars are on the inside. You can't see mine. I can't see yours. You know, and to be honest with you, we could look like we're uh, totally normal. Like, I mean, if nobody really knew me, they could size me up as some spoiled rich kid who grew up on the on the west side or whatever. I don't know where, how Pueblo's <laughs> dynamics are. But, uh, you know, for me, um, I just look like a spoiled little rich kid possibly. But my scars are all hidden. My father-in-law's, his are all on the outside. So you see it. And I think the reason why so many people identify with him and his disfigurement and his scars is because he looks like on the outside how many of us feel like on the inside. And that's been a powerful thing. And we've both have figured out that love can make your scars go away. The love of his wife, when he was injured in Vietnam, he came back. He was in a San Antonio, Texas at Brook Army Medical Center, and he was uh, 13 men were in a room. They were the intensive care of the intensive care. And the man that was in the bed next to him, that man's wife walked in, and she took, she looked at her husband, just a young teenage girl, maybe early 20s maybe, and she looked at her husband, who was 100% third degree. She took her wedding ring off, and she dropped it between his feet, and she said, you're embarrassing. I couldn't walk down the street with you. My father-in-law was in the bed next to him and watched all this play out, and now he's sitting there with a 19-year-old wife out in the lobby, and she's supposed to be coming in soon. And he's thinking that she's going to do the same exact thing. Instead, she walks up to his bed. She reads the chart on the bed. She walks up. She reads the tag on the arm to make sure it's him. And then she bent down and kissed the right side of his face, which was the worst burnt part of his body. And then she said, welcome home, Davey. I love you. So she loved him back to health. Yeah. And uh, she was his uh, soulmate. She was his everything. And she just passed away two months ago. But my father-in-law had the love of a woman that healed his scars, healed him. I had a love of a man, <laughs> the father figure, that loved me so much, that healed me. And then my wife, growing up watching her mom handle all her dad's insecurities. And it's funny how Dave's insecurities and my insecurities are the same. Our scars are different. His are outside, his are exterior, mine are interior, but yet the insecurities are still the same. And it is a weird psychological phenomenon for me to even figure that out. I don't know how that is because they're not present, or they're not physically obvious to everybody else, but yet I feel it. And um, so Dave and I, we've, for 10 years, we crisscrossed this country speaking in schools, talking about love can make your scars go away. And, uh, uh, we were keynote speakers together in 20, uh, I can't remember, 13, 14, for Promise Keepers. And uh, we did a lot with Promise. Maybe it was 2005. I can't remember. And uh, we did. You're getting old, bro. I know, bro. I know, but it is, <laughs> it's all running together. Right. But you know what? The bottom line is uh, I've I've been to several different countries throughout the world I have, um, I've lived a lifetime. And one thing I've noticed is I don't think I ever forget the pain, but I just learn how to deal with the pain and process it better. And sometimes having the pain is a good reminder 
of where I came from. So I'm 53 here in a few months, and um, I'll never know what it's like to hear the words, I love you, from my mom, a biological mother. To my knowledge, I cannot, I cannot ever remember hearing that word from my mother. My biological father told it to me a month or so before he died. He died on Christmas Eve. I was working at Station 2, and my phone started ringing, and there was other family members telling me that your dad is dying. But I don't. that was the only time I ever remember my father, biological father, ever telling me it. And um, there's certain things that I'll never have. I'll never know what it's like to be cradled in my mother's arms. I'll never know what it's like to be nurtured by my mother. I'll never know what it's like to be protected by my father or to go play ball with my dad. Or I never had any of those normal childhood experiences. And you want to know what's so funny is it's a huge void. And it robs me. Those are the things that haunt me. I can't. I can't deny it. It's something that I will never have. It's like uh, an emotional amputation. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you always want what you can't have in some ways. And it just, it hurts. And nothing can fill that void. And so, you know, that's why we do uh, pad it with all these other things, whether it be drugs, alcohol, uh, you know, porn, whatever. I mean, it's it's so many things that, that um, we try to numb ourselves with. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, being in the fire service, at least here in Pueblo now for the last going on, what, 14 years, I guess, 13 years. Um, it has, uh, the career changes you too. I went from being a very, uh, very positive and very, um, not cynical. Um, and uh, I was very emotional, like I, I could connect with people. Now I find myself, like when my mother-in-law died, man, there's no emotion. I see it too much. I see death on too many different levels, and you just lose that compassion, you know. My wife laid in bed next to me uh, probably three to four days after her mom passed, and we were just laying there, and uh, she started crying, and she just said, you know, for the first time in my life, uh, I don't have a mom. It was just that that recognition of that moment. She's like, I will never have a mother again. She's gone. And my wife starts crying. And Nick, I didn't know what to do. I mean, sure, you can put your arm around her or whatever. I was like, I felt awkward. I didn't know what to say, you know. For me, what I wanted to say was, well, um, I've been there. I lost my mom when I was six, basically, emotionally, you know. Uh, And... But to me, that's probably the better of the, of the two. It's better to lose my mom early on and not have any memories with her than to have, you know, 47 years worth of memories with a woman and then lose her, you know. Yeah. So, um, you know, faith is the biggest thing. And, I, you know, it's very weird for me because, you know, this is not a very popular topic amongst our career. You know, the fire service is anti-God uh, in a lot of ways because they, everyone wants to blame God for all the, the tragic things that we see. And I see that. It's just human nature. They got to blame somebody. So we're going to blame a higher power. It's just easier that way. But you the older. See the worst of the worst. Like, you, you know, and that's, you know, going back to you talking about being emotional and you lost all of that. 
you know, you go back to my story, you know, episode one of this podcast and, and some of the things like, I think I was always like a really emotional person, very sensitive. And, and as I get closer to God, like that comes out more, like I, I feel for people, like I, I guess you'd say the, I feel the Holy Spirit weeping. Mm-hmm. Well, I wasn't recognizing that back then on the fire service. Yeah. But what I saw tore me up. Yeah. And that created a void because I wasn't sharing those feelings. And then I filled the void with yeah. drugs and alcohol. Absolutely. And so I'm sure, you know, I, I, I pray that there's going to be some firefighters out there that listen to this yeah. and hear your story. And maybe they'll go back and hear my story. Yeah. And maybe through all of this, like they'll reach out yeah. and say, you know what, Phil, like I need help. Yeah. You know, I want to talk to Nick, yeah. whatever it might be like that's. Yeah. I pray God grabs a hold of these stories and really just takes that out to the masses. So yeah, interjection there. You, you know, going. well, and it's, it's through the years that I've, something I've always wanted to do is, is when I was doing the motivational speaking. And then I also traveled with uh, the company or the organization called promise keepers. Um, the number one thing that I heard every time I spoke was how genuine and authentic I was. I just connected with men because I'm not perfect, bro, and uh, I don't profess to be perfect. I have my own shortcomings, and my family will tell them, tell you every single one of them. And uh, but I'm a I'm a person that tries. I try to do my best. And uh, over the years, I've over the last ten years, my father-in-law and I have been his his heart is for military. My heart is for the fire service. And uh, he's built a ranch for these veterans that are active duty or um, retired or former military that can come. And if they're struggling with PTSI, post-traumatic stress injury, or if they're struggling just in general in life, they can come to the ranch and he pours into them. He's got a great program. Um, And he and I have been talking about firefighting because military recognized it early on. The fire service is just now getting a, like, we got a problem here. In 2017, we lost more firefighters to suicide than we did line of duty deaths. That was a huge monumental moment for the IFFF, IFF. They figured out that we have to address this. And so they have uh, put together a thing in Baltimore called the Center of Excellence, and it's a in-house treatment program, but they deal with a lot of things, whether it be emotional, substance abuse, or whatever, but it's a place where people can check in. And, and so they're reaching out, but there's only one. You know what I mean? And it's hard to get a bed in there. You take uh, it, I've been gone, what, gosh, 11 years now? Like there was there was nothing like that. Yeah. There was nothing. You didn't talk about what I was experiencing. Nobody asked about what I was experiencing. Yeah. Gone. So, man. That makes me sad yeah. because you'd still have a career today. If God's got a different path, but sure. he's taking me somewhere. Absolutely. But we just sent one of our members back there, and I think they spent about three months back there. And, um, you know, that's the beauty of the program. You know. Um, Is he back working? Uh, no. Actually, uh, made the decision to retire mm-hmm. after going through the program. I uh, just felt like that was the best decision for them. And, uh, you know, having that ability to make that decision on his own is super powerful. That's cool. Especially in a clear, it's not a, an emotional decision. Um, it's a decision that was brought out through therapy and counseling and, 
a lot of PTS, uh, PTSI. You know, this individual suffered, um, I mean, just suffered a tremendous amount of post-traumatic stress injuries over the career and just, you know, they say it's the straw that breaks the camel's back. It was the little things that got to them. And yeah. yeah, so uh, my wife and I, we've been dreaming this and we opened up a, uh, a 501c3 nonprofit called After the Alarm. And Nick, we're right in the beginnings of this, so there's nothing really to direct people to. But um, we believe in reaching out to firefighters that are struggling and we're uh, going to utilize my father-in-law's ranch out here in Westcliff and uh, we're going to bring firefighters from all over the, all over the country and do a little retreat center. And um, there's a potential that I'm going to speak for the uh, American airlines uh, does a tremendous charity kind of a thing. And my father-in-law has spoken for them and they've donated 3 million miles and allow him to um, uh, they fly all the military vets from all over the country using those 3 million miles. And so we're putting in the paperwork now to apply for that opportunity. And hopefully we can win 3 million miles that we can bring firefighters that are struggling. And I've got a retired captain out of Albuquerque fire who sits on my board, um, a retired fire captain that has also now become a, um, a, phys- or a, a therapist. He's a clinician now and uh, he specializes in post-traumatic stress and so he's certified in the state of New Mexico and Colorado, and he's helping me put together curriculum that will be real appropriate for how we address things going forward. And um, I'm really excited because this isn't something that's just going to be, I mean, I can see us doing uh, two programs, two retreats a month, uh, and just carrying it on and then traveling and speaking uh, throughout the country, you know, raising awareness also. And I mean, these are our city's heroes. It's so funny. The other night I ran a call, and and it was so violent and angry and aggressive. And then someone looked and said, oh, that's the fire department. Leave them alone. You know, and it's amazing that this culture that we live in today is is we hate the cops, but we love the firemen. So, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> you know, well, you feel bad for the cops. Yeah, I but. do. I do. I do. I really do. But, um, you know, we're the ones that have to get up close and personal with them, not the police. And so it's nice to know that they actually, uh, they like us. But, you know, there's a a tremendous amount of um, uh, respect and concern for our firefighters and what they're dealing with. And, you know, we've lost several firefighters, um, a couple just from our own department through uh, suicides. And that's been really difficult for us uh, through the years. And, you know, it's a very... um, Taboo subject. Nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to no. address it. It's like pornography and everything else. So I'm excited to hear about what you guys are going to yeah. do for the fire, the firefighters. I, I want the listeners to know, I know we have some younger kids and stuff that listen to this and uh, firefighters and police departments all over everywhere are in need yeah. of people and it can be a great career. And it's super exciting to see that some of the support tools are coming along with it. Uh, obviously there has to be a culture change. And I think the fire department was a, slow to change their culture yeah um all businesses have to grow and change evolve. their culture they have to evolve and, and yeah and, and so putting those things into place i think can be huge guys so there's there's a great career opportunity out there and trust me i miss it i, I miss the truck days and the heavy rescue days and yeah kicking indoors and uh you know sure the the saving of kids and some of the stuff that i did yeah wore on me in in odd ways that you wouldn't have never thought it 
but to have the ability to do go to the the ranch that you're going to do mm-hmm. that's huge guys so so big props to that so we're kind of nearing on time today phil hey. we're so happy to hear your story and just just from where yeah. you've been man to where you are you know the the kid that needed help but didn't have it to the man who's helping others and, yeah. and walking in the light and uh if um i've heard your father-in-law speak before and uh i didn't know that yeah incredible in fact i i didn't even put it together till just now wow like when you started telling the story i'm like heard this i had no idea that was your father-in-law yeah but um incredible story uh incredible incredible speaker um you know just this terrifying story that he makes fun he makes you laugh he makes you cry yeah um, if anybody ever gets the opportunity to hear him, if he's speaking anymore at all, or, or yeah. watch a video, in, incredible. Um, I like to always end the podcast with, you know, if there's one thing that you want the listeners to hear. What's the one thing you want to say to them? Whether, you know, it's where they are in their faith. Um, maybe they're lukewarm. Maybe they're not believers. What, Whatever it looks like, what's the one thing you want to leave them with today? Um. It's something that I came across. Uh, it's a guy by the name of Rob Bell. And uh, he had a little video that talked about uh, his son. And he had a little super a super ball in a dish. And he, basically the son took it away, lost its soul or whatever. And it turned into a thing where the son lied. And the kid got caught. And he went and hid under the covers and uh, for hours, and he was just embarrassed and mortified that he lied to his dad, but his dad knew. And so his dad goes and sits on the bed, and he pulls back the covers, and there was this little boy just soaking wet with sweat because he'd been under the covers for so long. But Rob Bell says that he picked up his little boy, and he looked at him, and he said, there's nothing that you could do that would ever make me love you less. And I think that's summarizes my life is knowing that I feel like the Lord has picked me up, held me on his lap. And he says, there's nothing that you could ever do that will make me love you less because I am an imperfect human. I strive to do the right thing, but there's that I lose the battle, you know, daily. And, uh, and there's that, there's that guilt that over like I knew better or you know better and uh, I remember that it's not about perfection. It's about not giving up and continue to strive towards the goal. And um, that image, though, the way that story was portrayed and, and the fact that we all are embarrassed of our own, uh, our own sin, and sometimes we want to give up and, and not even cry out to the Lord. You know what I mean? We just feel like uh, he can't forgive me. I am, I am a complete screw-up. Uh, I mean, I'm just, it, I'm not worth it. And that's how we feel. I feel that way. And um, the thought is that it says all throughout the Word that He does love us, and He will not forsake us. And, uh, and through that little story of there's nothing that we could ever do that would make Him love us any less, that is the one thing that I would like people to remember that even with all the mistakes that I've made, um, 
God has always been able to forgive me. I struggle with forgetting. Um, and that's my thing is I find that the biggest challenge in life is, you know, I can ask God for forgiveness, but I got to learn to forgive myself. You know, I keep God forgives and forgets, but I'm the one that keeps holding myself accountable. So maybe that's the Catholic in me. I've got to be punished for it, you know, (laughs) but, uh, um, definitely grace and mercy is what comes to mind. And, and that's what's changed my life. And uh, if there's someone out there that's struggling and thinks that um, uh, God can never forgive them for what they've done because maybe they've known better and they've continued to go down this path that they know they shouldn't be going down, just remember that there's nothing you could ever do, nothing at all, that you could ever do that would make him love you any less. And that when Christ died on the cross, it wasn't just for the thin sins that we've committed, but it's for the sins that will be committed as well. And it's hard to wrap our heads around that because it just seems too good to be true. Yeah. But um, it's the truth. But, Nick, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, uh, I love having you here. Hey, so after the alarm yes. website, you would just tell the tell listeners if people want to get on there and take a look at those things. Uh, yeah, but it's afterthealarm.com. And the point is, is after the alarm, the fire alarm, after the alarm goes off, what happens when the firefighter comes home and he's dealing with all the psychological and uh, that's what was basically birthed in our, our meeting. And so yeah, afteralarm.com and uh, uh, stay tuned. There's going to be a lot more to come. Awesome. Any social media pages or anything for that? Yet? Yeah, there's a Facebook page for sure. Um, my, uh, our people are handling that and we're actually working on the website as we speak. So, um, cool. but yeah, we'll maybe link it to your page or whatever. And yeah, absolutely. And We'd love to share connected. that. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. So, so great to have you. Thank you so much for Thank being you. here. I want to remind all the listeners, the fastlifeministries.com to give. We are looking for monthly partners. We could really use some support guys. So please uh, jump on, take a look at that. Of course, all of our social media pages, YouTube, all that fun stuff. And we just uh, thank everybody for listening. We encourage you to share and post and like and follow and all that fun stuff. Everybody have a blessed day.